So welcome to episode four of the Muscle Mentors podcast and episode two of the gastrointestinal series. If you haven't caught up with the first episode covering the mouth and the esophagus, probably do so first as that will kind of set the scene nicely going into this one. Um, unfortunately, I won't be being joined by Cal today as he is on holiday. So you'll have to make do with me on my own going through the stomach and the small intestine. But you know, hey, the, the big man's earned a good holiday and, and but that isn't going to stop me from uh, giving you all the brain gains you want. Um, but a little disclaimer before we get into this, obviously, you know, I'm not a licensed healthcare practitioner, so all the information discussed in this episode is purely hypothetical and for information purposes only. And it goes without saying, um, you know, consult your doctor, physician, nutritionist, dietitian, whoever's managing your your food and lifestyle um, choices, basically, um, before implementing any of the things that, you know, I speak about in this episode. And, uh, um, you know, this episode is going to be mainly educational, so there'll be a lot of geeky science covered. And I would actually recommend grabbing a pen and paper and making some some notes as, as things are going to get technical. Um, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> anyway, uh, without further ado, the uh, the stomach. So contrary to popular belief, the stomach is not where most digestion occurs. It's, it's where a lot of it occurs, but that title goes to the, the duodenum, which is the first part of the small intestine, which we'll get to in a bit. But what we're mainly concerned about in the stomach is protein digestion. Uh, proteins being broken down into peptides and amino acids. Uh, there is some fat digestion that occurs here too, but today we're mainly going to discuss the stomach's role in protein digestion. Um, some of the, the other areas the stomach plays a role in uh, would be things like it's, it's, it basically acts as a storage vessel for like recently consumed food. So like it can, you know, the stomach can typically store up to about four liters and that would vary depending on, the, you know, individual's size. Um, so yes, it does have the capacity to stretch. Um, uh, and um, yeah, it also plays a role in sending feedback to the nervous system based on stomach capacity. You know, there's a lot of... Uh, like nerve innovations and stretch receptors in the stomach that aid in satiety signaling and also regulating how the whole digestive process works when, when that's going on. Um, and lastly, it aids in absorption. Uh, so you've got things like water, a degree of alcohol, certain salts, some medications. There is uh, some amino acids that get absorbed there, um, depending on how well someone's ability or how effective someone's uh, digestive capacity in the stomach is um, or how strong that is um, but these can all be absorbed in the stomach and into the bloodstream um, but it is important to note however that the bulk of absorption actually takes place in the intestines so like there's a little bit but not a hell of a lot um, but there are things there are like there are some other cool things to know about the stomach so like specifically the role of many of the nerves and how these guys regulate the activity and motility of the stomach and this is like some really really cool stuff and um but i ain't gonna give everything away for free people you know cal and i are gonna be um this is actually pretty cool but cal and i will be announcing the date of our first seminar later this week and this is an area that we're going to delve into a lot more um, so, so keep your eyes open for that if you're keen to learn some some cool shit about the nervous system, um, because that that will get cool. Um, but today, so we're we're really concerned with the ins and outs of digestion. And, and on that note, there are basically three steps to digestion within the stomach. So we have um, it basically receives the bolus of food, which is that thing that kind of like ball of food that we, we spoke about in the last episode that gets made in the mouth and passes down the esophagus it's then responsible for churning this bolus up like the, there's like three layers of muscle in the stomach that so that basically aid in all the the big powerful muscular contractions of the uh, stomach with, with regards to mixing this bolus and then also it hydrolyzes this bolus so, so hydrolyzes basically like the enzyme assisted breakdown um, and we see that in the mouth in the stomach there's there's quite a lot and then we also see it in the in the duodenum uh, well, and, and throughout the small intestine in general, we'll get to that later. Um, but the ultimate goal in the stomach is to produce a substance called chyme, spelled C-H-Y-M-E, 
which is literally an acidic fluid made up of partially digested food and all the gastric secretions from the stomach. Um, within the gastric secretions and like juices, we find like enzymes. So we have like gastric lipase, which, like I said, there is fat digestion that occurs in the stomach. So the the you know. The, and this is responsible for breaking down like short, medium chain triglycerides. We also have something called pepsinogen, which we'll cover in a minute. Um, and, uh, and then we like we have gastric acid itself um, and the, the glycoprotein known as intrinsic factor, which uh, is required for B12 absorption. And if you recall from the first episode, there's a cool glycoprotein in our saliva known as haptocorin that basically binds B12 on its way into and through the stomach and aids in the B12, then binding to intrinsic factor so it can be absorbed later on in the final section of the small intestine, which is the ileum. So it does have quite a way to travel before it's absorbed. Um, An intrinsic factor isn't the only player in that. Um, But I think that's probably all we're going to say on the intrinsic factor. Um, I I don't think there's anything else to add on that. for the time being anyway um but gastric acid so this is the one that everyone messes up there's a um you know gastric acid is not hydrochloric acid like it, this is a common misconception like hydrochloric acid or hcl is not is a part of gastric acid but it's not the only part and um you know it's a combination of hcl kcl and nacl which the chemists out there will know those second two as potassium chloride and sodium chloride and yes like HCl makes up the greatest percentage but the other two are equally important and um, you know so right there we have the first question to ask is what do you think could happen if someone were deficient in sodium or potassium or and or potassium I suppose like both um, you know it's pretty you know you, you could get someone who has lower stomach acid levels not because of a you know, an HCL deficiency, but because of a deficiency in one of those electrolytes. And, um, you know, so so you get all these people complaining of, of low stomach acid or something like that, and, and they're straight onto the HCL bandwagon when, you know, they may um, benefit from simply increasing their salt intake or, or increasing potassium intake to some degree. And, um, you know, that, that's actually been noted by quite a few functional medicine practitioners out there, how they find that just giving people, getting people to salt their food with, with a decent source of salt um, will um, will actually improve uh, stomach acid levels. So, you know, it's, um, that's worth considering. But, you know, for the record, I, I, I will probably refer to gastric acid as HCL from... Here, like interchangeably from here on in, and that this is just from habit and for the sake of ease. <laughs> but understand that I'm not referring to hydrochloric acid in isolation. Um, but yeah, so gastric acid secretion is yeah. So gastric acid is secreted from these cells in the in the stomach called parietal cells, and it's in response to three stimuli. So we have like histamine, um, acetylcholine, and gastrin. And a histamine is obviously a neurotransmitter and it's released via these things called enterochromaffin-like cells, um, which is a bit of a mouthful. And then we have acetylcholine, which is basically stimulated from parasympathetic parasympathetic activity via the vagus nerve. So we, we, this we've spoken about before that digestion is a predominantly parasympathetic activity. Um, so you know if we're, if we're in a sympathetic state we, we've already lost one of the stimuli needed for adequate gastric acid secretion right um, and then we have gastrin which is the, the hormone that most people turn to but it's actually I, I'm pretty sure histamine actually plays the biggest role but that's mainly because gastrin has you know essentially causes the release of histamine um, but via both you know, gastrin is basically, it works via both direct action of binding to the parietal cells to, to cause ga- uh, gastric acid secretion and also binds to the, the enterochromaffin-like cells or the ECL cells and causes the release of histamine and HCL that way. So there's, there's a big role of histamine in this. And that's why there's certain foods that can actually promote the uh, release of histamine more so than others, things like red meat, and there's you know red meat is generally associated with high levels of gastric acid, right? 
that's one of the reasons. Um, but gastric acid itself has a pH of about two on average. You know, it actually ranges from one, one and a half to three and a half. So we have, you know, if we have like the relatively neutral pH of water, which is about seven, the way to gauge the potency of gastric acid is to understand that every number below seven is like 10 times as acidic as the previous. So when you get to two, you're looking at that acid being, you know, 100,000 times more acidic than water. And you go to one and you're getting a million times more. So that, you know, that should put some perspective in place as to how powerful this stuff actually is. And on the note of water, you know, we did actually cover this in our last Q&A, but we'll go over it here. You know, water will not, um, you know, I repeat, will not dilute stomach acid to any significant degree. Um, it may influence the pH a little, but there are many things that we need to consider before making that assumption. You know, firstly, as we talked about, you know, water is absorbed through the stomach in about five minutes on an empty stomach. So, you know, when we consider how long food sits in the stomach, five minutes of water in there is not really going to do much. And, you know, the, the difference between water being absorbed on an empty stomach and on a full stomach is, is not a hell of a lot. Um, we also know that any dilution that's caused by water when consuming it with meals has been shown to basically dissipate within three minutes. So when I say dilution, I mean like changed in pH. Um, but the actual amount of water that we need to increase stomach pH by one unit, so if, you, if we went from like two to three, is about five liters. And this, you know, this was calculated by some math geek on on the internet somewhere. So. It definitely wasn't me, and you know, I trust geeks. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, th this would that would be the case as well if all gastric acid is secreted at once, but it isn't. So it's a gradual process, and you know, on average, it's about 550 mil per meal. You know, and it can range from about 400 to 700. So by the time any water could even cause like a diluting effect it will probably have passed through the stomach anyway before all the gastric acid secreted so it doesn't really make sense to worry about it but there are reasons why you want to maybe consider not consuming a lot of water with a meal and that's mainly because people use it as a tool for lubrication so they're essentially bypassing one of the roles of their saliva which is to lubricate the food we eat so that it can pass through our esophagus easily so, you know, and they, they use water to do that essentially artificially. Um, so they're not helping the digestive process anyway. Um, and, you know, if you want to see what I mean there, just go and watch some competitive eating videos. Um, but the, the increased volume of food and fluid entering the stomach could be a cause for concern too when you consider the issues associated with low stomach acid levels, which we'll cover shortly. Um, but an excess of fluid in the stomach could cause things to spill back up into the esophagus, which will trigger symptoms of like gastroesophageal reflux um, disease or GERD. But you know the same thing could be said of any ex you know an excess of anything causing a limit to be put on stomach capacity. So all in all, it comes down to don't overconsume on food and or fluid in a meal, and you and you probably will get away with having normal pain-free gastric functioning. But it's um, you know that's that's not how most of us live but you know it, it, the best thing to do would be just make sure you chew your food properly um which we covered in the last episode and if you want to go back and see more of the roles of saliva then then go back and listen um but you know so so some of the other roles of gastric acid we want to consider that kills microbes um with the low ph so when, when you have an extremely acidic environment like that most of the microbes in there won't be able to survive there are some that can um, and there are like probiotics that have been designed nowadays to actually be able to survive the um, like high you know high acidity levels of the stomach um, it's also there to activate enzymes so gastric acid basically plays a key role in making sure protein digestion is adequate and that's where I mentioned this enzyme called pepsinogen earlier and this gets released from the chief cells um, of the of the stomach lining and, and this is then activated by hydrochloric acid or well, gastric acid um, and turned into pepsin so it basically cleaves off the agin of pepsinogen and um, pepsin then plays the, the key role in protein hydrolysis but that's worth noting that if you ever see an enzyme with or, or a you know, chemical name for an enzyme with 
Ogen at the end. So pepsinogen will fight will get some later called trypsinogen, chymotrypsinogen. That that signifies that that enzyme is inactive. So so there's always got to be some activation step that to make that enzyme do its job. Um, but it's also worth noting that the stomach itself is protected by a mucus layer, which is made up of a class of cells known as foveolar cells. Um, and the, the role of this layer is basically to prevent the protein digesting effects of pepsin from working on the stomach itself, because um, the stomach is essentially made of protein too, and the incredibly potent gastric acid from getting through. So, so we basically, that mucus layer is key. Um, and you know, in the case of mucus layer degradation, the stomach has an extra layer of muscle, um, which you know is mainly to aid in the powerful churning actions that you know it exhibits to produce chyme, but it's also another layer of thickness in case acid gets through. So, so there is a, an, you know, some some like safety barriers in place, but we don't want that to happen. And that's where I spoke about on the Q and A episode. Some people suggest dosing HCL supplementation based on how many you take and when you feel this like a burning sensation you've gone too far what you've basically done is create so much acidity that you degraded your mucus layer um, which is, is not a smart thing to do so you, you don't want to mess with that guy um, anyway that's that's pretty much covering it so going into like low gastric acid levels this is like a, a key area that people are concerned with and you know it's becoming increasingly common these days to see like low levels of gastric acid and annoyingly the symptoms associated with this are often touted as being caused by high levels of, of gastric acid so people wrongly take things to further reduce their acid levels that actually make things worse um, like we know that gastric motility is influenced by a number of things um, the stomach won't tend to let food pass through until it has been adequately digested um, and also the stomach won't let food pass through if there isn't room in the small intestine like we've already seen that it functions as a storage facility in such situations and we also know that things like acute stresses and chronic can alter the the digestive process by speeding or slowing gastric motility um, and you know in the case of acute stresses that they tend to speed things up and that includes things like you know if you've just been to the gym and trained and you go home and have a bit you know a huge amount of protein you're, you're probably not if you if you haven't implemented strategies to calm your nervous system down you're probably going to be in a in a you know less efficient place to deal with that protein um, especially if it's like a whole food source um, so uh, so when we take into account the role of gastric acid and how it actually works. If these levels are low, we know that digestion in the stomach is going to be slower, as there will be, you know, there's going to be less gastric acid present to activate that pepsinogen. So the foods we consume will stick, like stick around in our stomach for for a hell of a lot longer than they should, and even longer if we haven't chewed adequately. So what we should tip, you know, what should typically be, you know, two three hours. In, you know, food sitting in the stomach could be stretched to four or even five in some cases, depending on how low some people's levels are. So pretty much, you know, everyone will be eating more than once within a window that big, with you know, with the four or five out one. So especially those, you know, those. But even you know, when you look at like the shorter window, you you know, especially those gym bros that, that eat every two hours for that totally amazing, you know, maximized protein synthesis, and that totally scientifically proven metabolic boosting effect of eating frequently yeah yeah that's that's sarcasm folks um, so I'll uh, you know I'll, I'll ask you clever peeps to figure out what may happen when we're consistently dumping you know often unchewed food into our stomach that does have a finite capacity when we have low HDL levels you know I'm hoping that you all said that the stomach will fill up and things will spill up out of the lower esophageal sphincter, which we spoke about in the last episode, which is that ring-like muscle that separates the um, stomach from the, the esophagus. Um, but that's basically what happens. Like all the acidic chyme gets bounced back up into our esophagus, and we get that horrible burning sensation. You know, and then, and then we, and it's basically just from stuff being dumped in the stomach on top of each other, on top of each other, and the stomach's not prepared to let stuff through because it can't deal with that stuff properly. And uh, 
and and you keep piling stuff on and it eventually spills out um you know then we get all these numpties taking medications for hyperchloridia which is you know an overly high stomach acid level um because logically and it is logical to assume that you know acid spilling out of the stomach should be due to high levels and it was generally believed and then they actually dug a little deeper and, and realized that wasn't the case um most of the time i think it is some of the time but i've rarely seen it um and researchers have rarely seen it too now um but the um you know taking things like antiacids and proton pump inhibitors you know is just going to make the situation worse because you're basically reducing your already low acid levels and and people wonder why that stuff doesn't go away um the um you know best place to start would be chew your food more um you know eat less frequently you know and if that doesn't help the situation consider adding in a digestive enzyme with some hcl in um obviously under the supervision of your of your healthcare practitioner but we you know we covered a a little on how to dose those in our last Q&A episode and you know and Cal and I you know Cal and I will be delving into this all quite a lot more in our seminar so if you're interested in knowing more keep on alert for that another shameless plug sue me <laughs> anyway that um that should be you know enough on the stomach for the time being um you know hopefully you've all had a chance to geek out a bit and, and learn a little bit on the importance of that organ and, and you know and how it plays a role in our eating habits and stuff but you know the 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 big takeaway here is like like in our first episode is chill out eat more slowly eat less frequently if you're aiming for muscle growth um that that still applies you don't need these frequent feedings it's been proven quite a few times and you know if you think you factor in the longevity of you want a functioning digestive system to actually break down the food you're eating um you know so and give your digestive system a chance to work um you'll be doing yourself a favor because you know as we've said before if you're not digesting the food you eat you're not absorbing it if you're not absorbing it your cells are not assimilating it if your cells are not assimilating it good luck putting on an outrageous amount of muscle and or optimizing your health but you know we all know that muscle is the more important one that's a little bit more sarcasm uh, <laughs> um so uh so yeah i mean that that should cover the stomach and you know that we're going to dive in to the small intestine now um and you know for me this is where things get pretty cool and you know it's also worth noting there is a lot more to the stomach we'll go into that more in depth in seminars and stuff especially with regards to like the the role of the nervous system there because that's really really cool um but um you know the small intestine i think this is that things get the coolest you know it's also the hardest part to go through on a podcast unfortunately as it pays to have some visual aids in the form of like diagrams and such things um when going through this bad boy but um you know even so we have uh, we have three parts so we have the duodenum which is you know the first part immediately following the stomach and this is where most digestion occurs in the entire digestive tract which is you know not often known um you know we get the release of pancreatic enzymes here as well as bicarbonate from the pancreas um, the role of bicarbonate is to neutralize the acidity of of the chyme that enters through enters well that comes through from the stomach you know so once the chyme enters the duodenum the pancreas releases cck or cholecystokinin and secretin the secretin stimulates the release of bicarbonate um and the cholecystokinin the cck acts as an appetite suppressant as well as stimulating the release of bile from the gallbladder um which we'll cover in depth at the end of this and that's pretty cool um you know but the duodenum is is actually an acidic environment and this is where you know again people people assume the small intestine is generally completely alkaline it basically transitions to more alkaline as we go through but it starts off pretty acidic um but we need that acidity in order to absorb most of the minerals um you know we the, the, this is where in the duodenum we absorb most minerals and, and we need an acidic environment for that to occur um and uh, you know we you know we also see the absorption of of monosaccharides, um, you know, glucose, galactose, and fructose in the uh, in this part of the small intestine too. 
and um, you know for those that this is a bit off topic a little bit off topic but for those that want to know some cool stuff about fructose and the mechanisms behind fructose malabsorption it's essentially due to a reduction and or deficiency in the amount of GLUT5 proteins on the border of the, the enterocytes that make up our intestinal wall. Um, you know, the enterocytes are basically, you know, if you think entero is kind of um, digest, you know, the, the gastrointestinal system and then site, C-Y-T-E-S, is, is cells, so it's basically like intestinal cells, essentially. Um, we, uh, but when we lack the necessary amount of these glucose transporters, even though they should probably be called fructose transporters because they only work on fructose, but flute doesn't sound quite catchy as glute. Um, anyway, um, but it's you know the the when we lack the necessary amount of them, we basically don't get. We don't have an efficient ability to transport fructose across the. Uh, or out of our intestine and what happens is you basically get a buildup of, um, of fructose in the small intestine and when fructose can build up there it can basically ferment um, and it will you know you get a, an excess of, of, of gas production from that fermentation because some of the bacteria will feed off that um, and that can basically cause gastric distress um, and you get things like bloating and diarrhea and, and you know so, so people with um, issues when they consume large amounts of fruit and they get kind of a large amount of gastric distress there could be a potential that they've got some GLUT5 deficiency and there are ways to improve that um, we won't cover that but that's something to look into if, if that's something you're finding that every time you eat a lot of fruit and, and you'll find that more with fruits that are higher in fructose so you'll be looking at things like dried fruits and stuff like that um, but that will be that's definitely one to look into because it's very very common um, and uh, you know, there's also you know things that contain large amounts of like high fructose corn syrup, um, which generally are shit. You shouldn't eat, you know consume them anyway if you want to value your health. But if you if you notice gastric distress following that sort of thing, then potentially that's why. Um, yeah, and, and on another geeky note, you know it's probably worth noting that every you know everyone always talks about GLUT4, um, but there are actually 14 different glucose transporters in the human body pretty sure it's 14 yeah I think it's 14 um, and that's um, but that's just another cool fact and, and they all do varying different things and they're all you know in different located in different bodily tissues and, and they're all pretty cool but anyway back to what's absorbed in the duodenum um, we have like short and long chain fatty acids absorbed here vitamins A, D, E um, K gets absorbed further down the colon. It's also synthesized by most of our bacteria anyway, provided we have the necessary strains. Um, and many of the B vitamins and vitamin C. And that pretty much wraps up the duodenum in some words of what's absorbed. And then we have the, the jejunum, which is the second part. And this is where, generally speaking, most absorption takes place in the gastrointestinal system. And we see basically the remainder of the amino acids we consumed getting absorbed here along with the disaccharides, uh, sucrose, maltose, lactose. So these are the guys that are made up of, of more than one monosaccharide, well two monosaccharides, hence disaccharide, um, and uh, and also a lot of the, the B vitamins. Um, and then lastly the, the ileum which is where we see B12 being, re, uh, being absorbed as well as cholesterol and the reabsorption of uh, bile salts from the bile that's been used in the digestive process thus far, which we'll cover in a minute in detail, gruesome detail. Um, but the uh, the area to discuss in detail with regards to the the small intestine, I believe, is is the brush border, um, which is which is awesome, um, and it's the bit that's most commonly affected by dietary and eating practices, and, and so it's, it's definitely one to consider. But the brush border basically lines the entire intestinal lumen which is the inside of the small intestine um, and is made up of these things called villi and they're spelled v-i-l-l-i and these are these are basically these finger-like projections and they're basically like hairs on a brush hence the name um, and these guys are there to increase surface area of the small intestine which is in turn there to maximize absorption and they also house these things 
things called the microvilli, which are even smaller finger-like projections that sit on the on the on the villi, and that you know. So the surface area we're talking is massive. And for those that recall the first episode, the surface area of the entire digestive system is about three thousand square feet if you were to lay it all out, and that you know that's you know the size of a regulation tennis court, which is pretty damn big. Um, so you know, on on this border, we we have these these enzymes called brush border enzymes, um, and these guys are these guys are wicked, um, and they're they're essentially responsible for the remainder of digestion that takes place in the small intestine. Um, you know, so so yes, there you know there are a number of enzymes released from the pancreas, specifically the uh, the pancreatic peptidases, which are the peptide specific enzymes um so like the you know ace generally means if you ever see something with ace like we saw anything with ogen generally means it's inactive anything with ace basically signifies the the breaking apart of so whichever comes the, the word comes before that basically means the breaking apart of whatever it was so peptid peptide ace basically means that you know the breaking apart of peptide bonds so that these guys basically work on proteins and like I mentioned earlier, there's these things called trypsinogen and chymotrypsinogen, which are the main two. And there's a there's an enzyme on the brush border called enteropeptidase. So there's another entero. Um, so it's basically the the peptidase that is is working in the enteric system or enteric nervous system, you know, which is in the gastrointestinal system. Um, so enteropeptidase, which will then basically work similarly to gastric acid in the stomach in that it basically cleaves off the ogen of these two guys and, and you get trypsin and chymotrypsin respectively. And, um, you know, these guys then work to break the peptides down into single amino acids. And, and, and that's basically the end result of all things here with regards to digestion, like proteins, carbs, fats, they all get broken down into their simplest parts, um, amino acids, uh, monosaccharides and fatty acids. And these things, um, they, you know, there's these things called nucleotides that get broken down into nucleosides. Um, and that they're basically like the, the DNA of the food we consume. Um, but the, these all these simple parts are basically referred to as monomers so they're basically all these like the simplest forms of these of these molecules basically so um and that that's the most ideal form for absorption um because they're in their smallest parts they can get through the the cells um through all the varying um absorption mechanisms and also through the uh um, like tight junctions between our enterocytes you know so our, our small intestine lining is actually only one cell thick and and those cells are basically held together by these things called tight junctions and these these tight junctions we, we won't go into leaky gut and, and, and increased intestinal permeability is going to probably be a whole episode in itself but you basically need to know that these cells have an ability to like these junctions have an ability to get bigger um in in the presence of like information and stuff like that or excessive information and when that's the case um it's um you can get some serious issues with regards to immunity like autoimmunity and stuff like that which we'll cover it in the future but just know that that is, is you know it's there there is a there is a need for intestinal permeability but when things get hyper permeable and those those tight junctions move too far apart you can get real issues um but in future seminars you know cal and i will really go deep into the differing methods of digestion with respect to all these different molecules or like differing methods of absorption really um because there's some pretty cool stuff that goes on um you know, so we, you know, with respect to absorption, there's like the primary active transportation, which which deals with the proteins and the nucleotides and nucleosides, and the the secondary active transportation, which is basically involves the sodium, potassium pump, and that's basically how carbs are absorbed. And then you have like fatty fatty acid absorption, which is how basically fats get absorbed into the body through the lymphatic system, which is incredibly interesting. And like the the fellow geeks out there will love that one. Um, but the because um, that that's there's some cool processes that occur there and um, some cool implications too. But we'll that's there's no need really to go into it now. It'll probably stretch this episode an extra half an hour. Um, but um, you know, knowing all that, so all the roles of the uh, 
those that brush border etc the fact that these these villi and microvilli will you know can and will atrophy in the presence of information um, which is typically caused by like low quality nutrition and, and some real issues there you get issues with bacterial overgrowth that can cause the same thing you know is it any wonder why people suffer with you know deficiencies and sensitivities when they consume low quality processed foods all the time because you know i mean they're literally destroying the guys that are responsible for the bulk of their protein digestion as well as the absorption of sugars like lactose and all the, you know all these other disaccharides and stuff so lactase which is the enzyme responsible for hydrolyzing lac lactose sits on the brush border so if you don't have a brush border you're not going to have lactase or if you don't have an adequate brush border you're not going to have adequate amount of lactase you don't have an adequate amount of lactase you're probably not going to have um, an ability to process lactose properly so you're going to present with symptoms of uh, you know a lactose intolerance um, you know so is is there a solution yeah you know some people basically get this and then assume that's how they're you know they're permanently like that and you know there are situations where that's probably the case but the solution could be potentially stop eating shit change your eating practice um you know so everything up the chain is working a little more effectively it's taking the stress off the small intestine that way and probably seek the help of someone who can aid you from a nutritional perspective with respect to like helping you learn how to eat healthier then you commit to the change and your brush border will probably hypertrophy in return because it does do that you know if it can atrophy it can hypertrophy um and you might you know be able to get get away with actually eating some of the foods you enjoy of course in moderation because no one should be eating shit all the time um, and not suffer with the same level of intestinal distress um, but you know that's just food for thought but there, basically there is a way to, to change that and people just need to um, dig a little deeper um, anyway that's that's all I wanted to say on the small intestine for now um, so I reckon we'll dive into the liver and the gallbladder and we'll keep this relatively brief um, because been relatively intense um but what i'll uh talk about now is yeah so the role of the liver the gallbladder um function of the liver um basically we have obviously metabolism is a, is a key one so like and that, and that basically is like an umbrella term which involves the you know the catabolism of nutrients entering the liver so that's the breaking down of them and then the anabolism or synthesis of, of various macromolecules um, but so, which we'll discuss in a minute and we, we, we should also all know the, the liver's role in storage um, like it stores glucose, it's glycogen, fats, it's triglycerides, uh, lipoproteins uh, so the guys that help with transporting cholesterol around, um, B12 vitamins A, D, E, K, so all the fat-soluble guys, zinc, iron, uh, copper, magnesium, there's loads, um, you know, and that's a, there's another reason why consuming high-quality liver from animal sources is a great way to jack up vitamin and, and minimal presence in someone's diet, um, but, you know, there, there are things to consider there, like, you know, the liver's also a pretty strong source of heme iron, and like contrary to popular belief, you know, heme iron is actually quite a toxic thing to have and, and non-heme is, is actually, which is found in plant foods, so non-heme iron, which, you know, we can cover this again in another episode because that's pretty cool. Um, but like heme iron isn't actually a great thing to have in a huge amount of, um, in, in excess and then non-heme iron is generally processed far better by the body. Even though in research, non-heme iron on paper doesn't get absorbed as well its its absorption is far more regulated than heme iron and heme iron is also a a pro-oxidant whereas non-heme iron does not act as such so so there's and pro-oxidants will essentially jack up the amount of oxidative stress in the body so you know there's definitely things to consider there um but um in terms of the storage of the liver like you, you this is where it's pretty pretty interesting and it also explains why some people can eat terribly for a long time and not really get too messed up in certain situations because you have like the capacity to store about five to seven years worth of b12 in the liver um about four years worth of vitamin a and about four months worth of vitamin d which is not too shabby at all um but it also explains why you know 
how we potentially adapted with vitamin D where we don't get sunshine for quite a few months of the year and we have those like a pretty decent storage capacity for it and then the other two, you know, five to seven years worth of B12, etc. Um, that's it's pretty decent. Um, you know, and we also see uh, in the liver itself uh, plasma protein synthesis, um, you know, and these are carrier proteins such as albumin, uh, C-reactive protein, which we you know plays a role in in responding to inflammation, fibronectin, which is key in clotting, um, and then also the various globulins, um, you know, as, as well as there's a lot of other hormones, pro-hormones, uh, apolipoproteins, which are the guys that basically um, deal with transporting lipoproteins around. Um, but hormones like this, you know, IGF-1 is is produced in the liver, which is pretty cool. Um, and that's um, that yeah that's one of the key players there um, and there's also the role of the liver in detoxification but that's another you know an entire episode in itself but it, you know this is our you know everyone touts it as the master detoxifier and it is like most of the detoxification process will run through the liver um, but what we need to be aware of there is that we then need to get those detoxified compounds out of the body. Um, and if you know if the liver, uh, if the if our ability to transport stuff out of our body is poor, so if our like get, uh, gastric motility, uh, colonic motility, so stool transit time is really slow, or um, yeah, well if it's really slow, we're not going to get stuff out adequately, so that's going to cause an issue. Um, but anyway, I mean, there's a lot on the liver, and that you know, that just gives you a brief, um, brief view. Um, I suppose there's also worth mentioning the blood flow of the liver. Like we have the hepatic portal vein and the hepatic arteries. You know, the hepatic portal vein delivers uh, about seventy-five percent of the liver's blood supply, and that comes from basically like the GI tract, um, the spleen, and other organs, um, and uh, and but it's also worth noting that oxygen is actually provided from both those sources. So that so the liver does have a pretty damn good supply of oxygen, um, even in the case of uh, the portal vein. So it's you know it's 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 a pretty cool organ. Um, uh, I suppose it's worth mentioning on the detoxification standpoint that you know this is where this is basically where we see like toxin breakdown and deconjugation um, from the food and like bacteria products that get pumped through the liver um, such as like lipopolysaccharides um, which is like the most inflammatory compound known to man and that's basically a bacterial cell wall fragment um, from gram-negative bacteria which is some of the nasty guys so when you get excessive like we the liver is always dealing with a certain amount of those but when you get excessive levels of these gram-negative bacteria uh, or bacteria that they, they uh, will basically lead to an overproduction of LPSs, lipopolysaccharides, and that can overwhelm the liver's ability to deal with that, and you get really messed up levels of inflammation in the body. Um, yeah, and, and detoxification itself is is generally led by this thing called cytochrome P450 enzymes. Um, these things, I suppose, um, and these are actually you know one of the things that decrease drug efficacy so they you know reduce the effectiveness of certain medications so when the you know people are coming up with certain medications that they're, they're basically basing it on the liver's ability to deal you know essentially inactivate a lot of that compound so they have to account for that which is pretty cool but um anyway moving on probably lastly i imagine um to the uh but like the biliary tree or the bile, you know, bile production and you know this is where the gallbladder comes in and um, this is quite a controversial area because there's a lot of assumption made about this but people don't tend to dig that deep um, which is wrong um, and our, the next guest we have on is going to go into bile in some pretty cool um, pretty cool depth with regards to its role in like bacteria like the microbes and stuff like that but I'm basically just going to cover the mechanisms how it's made um, and some implications with regards to what happens when people get their gallbladder removed and stuff. But um, basically bile is made up of, of both bile pigments and bile salts. And bile pigments are just generally, let's give it its colour, there's a little role to them, but we're not really going to discuss that today. Um, but bile salts are, are what we're most interested in. And these are basically synthesised from cholesterol, which is broken down into cholic acid, so CHO, L-I-C, 
and keno deoxycholic acid, which I'm not even going to bother spelling, you just have to look that one up. But C H E, so keno. Um, and uh, these are basically the bile acids. And then we have, which we spoke about in, I think, the first QA, we have glycine and taurine that are basically bound up to these guys to make bile salts. And these are some amino acids. So we get glycocholic acid, taurocholic acid glycokinodeoxycholic acid and taurokinodeoxycholic acid and, and these are basically the primary bile salts um, and you know in terms of bile flow basically goes like this um, bile is synthesized in the liver now remember that so synthesized in the liver it flows down the common hepatic duct um, through the cystic duct and gets stored in the gallbladder and then we have what we mentioned earlier, cholecystokinin, which is the hormone released um, by the pancreas, which is then it stimulates uh, the gallbladder to contract, which then pushes the bile back up out the cystic duct and through the common bile duct and into the into the first part of the small intestine, the duodenum. And here, it basically aids in neutralizing the acidity of chyme because it is is quite alkaline. Um, despite being a bile acid and um, because it's bound to the salt you basically it changes some of the uh, the charge of that and, and you like, loses some of the hydrogen ions and it becomes quite alkaline and um and it acts as an anti uh antimicrobial and um and also then the, the main role that people speak about is its ability to emulsify fatty acids so it essentially allows fatty acids to be made small enough and water soluble enough to be able to be broken down by pancreatic lipase and colipase which is like the main um, fatty uh, well fat di fat digesting enzymes released by the pancreas and without bile you know we cannot adequately digest these larger chain fatty acids so a bile deficiency can cause an inability to break down fat soluble vitamins um, which which you know typically it's suggested that after a gallbladder removal which is also known as a cholecystectomy hence the name cholecystokinin cck uh, that we that we get a um, you know a deficiency in bile will, will occur but it is somewhat missing the bigger picture okay, it's somewhat true can be but it's also missing the bigger picture in the sense of what I said there we know that bile is only stored in the gallbladder it's synthesized in the liver so the, the gallbladder doesn't play a role in bile synthesis but so so these individuals that have lost their gallbladder are not lacking an ability to make bile because this is you know a hepatic lead function um, you know it's, it's lead in the liver so they simply can't store it um, you know and th this basically means that bile produced in the liver has no ability to be stored um, and if that production isn't regulated which oftentimes it isn't um, bile can basically drip through into the small intestine and, and overwhelm the small intestine's capacity to reabsorb the the bile salts in the ileum and you know this is key because but bile is reabsorbed in this final part of the ileum and via enterohepatic circulation um, which is like the so circulating between the entero system, you know, the intestinal system and the liver, you know, the hepatic system, the liver system, enterohepatic circulation. Each molecule of bile is reused about 20 times and, you know, multiple times during a single digestive phase. So if we have multiple frequent feedings, bile, bile deficiency is, is a potential outcome when combined with poor small intestinal health as not only will we lack the ability to adequately reabsorb the bile in the ileum, but we'll also lack the ability to absorb cholesterol and you know the amino acids responsible for biosynthesis, glycine and taurine. So, you know, and you know, you can go even deeper and say, moreover, if we were, you know, if we were to have an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine, the bacteria have the ability to deconjugate biosalts and, and to feed off the constituent parts essentially. And this makes reabsorption very difficult too. So, you know, we've already seen that bile has an antimicrobial effect. So if bile can, you know, doesn't get absorbed in the, in the ileum and it can get through into the, you know, the micro-dense environment of the colon, the large intestine, it has the ability to irritate bacteria and cause the diarrheal response because it's, you know, it's an antimicrobial. Um, you know, so, that, so the point of this is basically telling someone 
to supplement with bile if they have if they've had their gallbladder removed you know people can can basically get ox bile and stuff like that um you know and it's become like a, it's just some like blanket advice that's given so oh you've got your gallbladder removed yeah just just supplement with some bile and it's like you know that can actually be dangerous um in some cases because um you know you, you're potentially just going to make things worse and you know these people are going to keep suffering from gastric distress um you know and in such cases bile sequestrants may be um you know maybe a, a preferred option and you know these things basically help to bind up bile and aid in its reabsorption within the small intestine you know and, and there's some cool um supplements for this would be things like boswellia um, propolis and there's one called google but spelt g-u-g-g-u-l um and there are some awesome uh, veggies that have bile sequestering effects uh, too but we'll um we'll uh we'll, we'll save those for the seminar for those interested <laughs> um and uh but yeah i mean that that basically wraps up bile um but so it's, it's a big thing and you know you see it in a lot of people with crohn's disease where they 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 can suffer damage to their like their ileum and they they lack the ability to um reabsorb bile and and every you know they have high fat foods and and they get serious gastric distress from it so it's definitely one to consider um but obviously consult your doctor before doing all that stuff or you know physician nutritionist whatever but anyway that should probably be enough for one now i'm probably sure you're all pretty bored of of hearing me without cow um but that was that was probably enough and that was pretty deep um so i hope you enjoyed it but we'll um we'll be dropping our first guest episode later this week which is going to be finishing off the the gastrointestinal system and that probably uh, means we'll put the rest of this educational series out before our next q a um just to make sure you'll have those brain gains on hand um but in the meantime you know continue sending cow and i any and all questions regarding anything and everything uh, you want us to offer our opinions on uh, you know we've got an, a wicked stockpile on hand already but by all means keep sending things in because there's some really really good questions coming through um, and some of them are so good that we've you know already said we're gonna have to do entire episodes on them so if you've got big questions that you you're worried that they might be too big send it in and we'll probably do an episode on it um, and uh, you know for those that don't know if you're new to the podcast you know you can reach both Cal and I via email at either Luke at themusclementors.co.uk and Callum at themusclementors.co.uk Callum with one L um, or go straight through our Instagrams um, for those that follow me you'll know that I'm no longer under biophysiques I'm now under Luke underscore the muscle mentors and Callum is under CR physique and of course he is going to change this to Callum underscore the muscle mentors in the near future but for the time being that's where you'll find the big dog CR physique um, but anyway, I hope you enjoyed me being a total geek about the gastrointestinal system and uh, and that you didn't miss Cal's presence too much. But, um, you know, if you did enjoy the episode, it would really help us out if you would, uh, would please drop us a review on iTunes and leave us a rating. Obviously, five stars. <laughs> Come on, guys. Um, but anyway, thanks. Um, until next time, peace. <laughs>